Um, this semester in large group, we were looking at two Old Testament figures. We're looking at a man named Daniel and a woman named Esther. And both Daniel and Esther have a lot to teach us about what it means to be salt and light uh, in a dark and fallen world, uh, what it means to be different for goodness sake. Uh, the first time that we uh, meet Daniel, the first time that we met him, uh, we meet him as a college student at what we're calling Babylon U. Uh, he is there for three years and he's being schooled in Babylonian culture and world and, and life view. College was a critical time uh, in Daniel's life just as much as it's a critical time in your own. Uh, in college, Daniel was making decisions and developing habits of heart that really affected the trajectory of his life and also helped shape the contours of his character. And the same is true of you uh, right here and right now. And when Daniel made uh, his life decisions in college, and not just the big ones, not just what am I going to you know, pick for my major, but even seemingly small ones like am I going to do my homework tonight or am I going to go uh, to the party you know, on, on Buell Street. He made those choices not in a vacuum, right, but in a vortex. And here's what I mean by that. In Daniel, or in college rather, uh, Daniel encountered many competing and sometimes contradictory ideas that were always there and always swirling around him. These are ideas that are pushing him and pulling him, and they are moving him in one direction or the other. Uh, and similar forces exist here at UVM. Uh, I've been calling those forces or those ideas the flow. You can think of them as the cultural current. But these are ideas that are swirling around these, this place. It's a, a vortex of sorts. And these ideas are powerful, and they are driving, and they are influential. Okay, they take you places. I told you an old joke. It's not a very funny joke, but it's a two fish, right? And one fish looks to the other and says, hey, how's the water over there? And the fish responds, what is water? You know, what's water? Cultural currents function a lot like that. Okay, they are easy to miss. They're easy to miss not because they, um, they're not obvious, but because they are, because they are so obvious. Uh, these are things that are right in front of you and so easily taken for granted. And it's in, in that respect that they can be dangerous because if you're, not, if you're not aware of them, it's so easy to get caught up in them. This idea of the flow, right, of a cultural current. What we've done the past few weeks is slow down to survey the flow here at UVM. What are the cultural currents here and now? And we've looked at one idea for every year that Daniel's in college. Three years in college, sort of three weeks to spend time sort of surveying the flow. We considered the cultural claim that in order to be happy, you need to be free. Free to do what you want, when you want, so long as you don't harm anyone. We also offered at that time an alternative an alternative vision for human health and happiness. Uh, last week, we looked at the culture's attitude towards sex. Uh, that sex is everything, and sex is also nothing. Sex is so banal and meaningless, like racquetball. It's just something that we do together. Yet sex is so hugely significant that we can't possibly live without it. We also countered it with, I, with what I think, and... Maybe you 
uh, would agree or disagree, but is a better and more balanced view of what sex is uh, and a view that comes from the Bible. Well, today, uh, week three, year three, uh, I want to talk to you about truth. And for that, I want us to look at this passage uh, from John 14, uh, verses 1 to 7. Okay? Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way I'm going. Uh, And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for bringing us together uh, in this room, uh, in this place. Help us to understand um, more what truth is and, and, and help us to understand you better. Uh, who claim to be the way and truth and life. I pray that you would indeed become more beautiful and believable in our sight tonight. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, tonight's sort of topic, uh, the sort of the flow, uh, is, is really about truth. Uh, we are living in interesting times, friends. Uh, we are living at a time where, in a post-truth world, Uh, A world where alternative facts and personal realities are polluting perceptions uh, as well as our public discourse. Uh, In 2016, uh, Oxford Dictionary selected post-truth as the international word of the year. The dictionary defines post-truth as this, as, quote, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal beliefs. Post-truth is claiming that a recent refugee ban is a matter of American national security. That's a post-truth claim. Since 1980, three million refugees have settled in the United States and not one has taken the life of an American in an act of terrorism. The conservative Cato Institute estimates that the likelihood of an American being killed by an act of terrorism by a refugee is 1 in 3.64 billion. 1 in 3.64 billion is the odds of you being killed by a refugee, an American refugee, in an act of terrorism. Okay, those are the facts. But in a post-truth world, never mind the facts. Sadly and strangely, those things, those things being facts or reality itself, mean less and less, and truthiness matters more and more. What matters more is if it sounds true. What matters most is if it feels true. The facts be damned. An old prophecy is applicable here. Woe, God says... 
to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to you. It is a dire and a dangerous thing to live in a world that has little or no disregard for the truth. And needless to say, the demand for salt and light and a time and a place like this, uh, at a time and a place like ours, can hardly be overstated. We need people who know the truth, who love the truth, and who tell the truth. And that includes political truths, of course, but it certainly includes moral and religious truths as well. As the Dalai Lama has put it, in our struggle for freedom, truth is the only weapon we possess. What I want to do tonight is examine our culture's attitude uh, towards truth and its relationship to religions that claim to know the truth and to have the truth. That's what I want to do tonight. We will do that by uh, questioning three popular slogans that you might hear on a campus like ours. The three slogans you might hear at the University of Vermont. First, the world's religions are just different paths up the same mountain. Have you ever heard that? We're going to talk about that. Second, no religion sees the whole truth. It only sees in part. Okay, and three... You have your truth, I have my truth. Just keep your truths to yourself. Those are the three things I want to look at tonight. And then after working through some of these slogans, let's conclude with Jesus' statement that we saw up here and that you've got before you, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I want to consider the truthfulness of that claim as well as its relevance for us today. Okay? So a little roadmap. First, let's... Tackle this first slogan. Okay, the world's religions are just different paths up the same mountain. Raise your hand. I mean, I don't mean to embarrass you, but if you, have you ever heard this before? Have you ever said it before? I know I did when I was back in college. I mean, it was something that I believed before I became a Christian. Um, you understand the gist of it. Okay, essentially all of the world's religions are the same. Okay, all the world's religions are saying... Uh, the same thing. They're just using different language, just different uh, using just different concepts to express it. Well, in his uh, important book, uh, God is Not One, The Eight Rival Religions That Run the World and Why Their Differences Matter, Stephen Prothero, who is a uh, professor of religion at BU, writes, this is a lovely sentiment, but it is dangerous, disrespectful, and untrue. It's a neat idea. It's a lovely sentiment. Okay, but it is dangerous, disrespectful, and untrue. Uh, I want, I've printed out, I, I actually made this chart for students at summer conference where I teach a four-day seminar um, on, on a lot of topics like this. But you have before you a chart that, with Prothero's help, uh, I've been able to put together sort of a map of some of the world's major religions and where they stand on certain key issues. Right away, if you just were to... to a cursory glance of that chart, and it will become readily apparent to you that there are some obvious, irreconcilable differences amongst the various world religions. Obvious, irreconcilable differences. 
As one the, uh, another theologian has pointed out, to believe all religions simultaneously, to say that they're all true, to believe all religions simultaneously is to become hopelessly entangled in self-contradiction. One simply cannot accept the Hindu belief that there are 300,000 or more gods and at the same time accept the Muslim belief that there is only one God. Nor can one embrace either Hinduism or Islam and Buddhism because historic Buddhism does not believe in a personal God at all. Or consider religious opinions about the afterlife. Confucius says there is no afterlife, just the here and now, so make the most of it. Christianity teaches that there is a heaven and a hell. Which is it? Both of these views can't be true. They can't all be right. To claim that they are all true is to get hopelessly entangled in self-contradiction. You can claim that the world's religions are different paths up the same mountain, and you can claim to have... The biggest electoral college win since Reagan. Uh, But simply saying so doesn't make it true. Okay? Alternative facts are not facts. Alternative facts are lies. The world's religions are not equally valid paths up the same mountain. So quote Prothero one more time. If practitioners of the world's religions are all mountain climbers... They are on very different mountains, climbing very different peaks, and they're using very different tools and techniques in their ascents. So that's the first slogan, okay? The world's religions are just different paths up the same mountain. No, different mountains, different peaks, different tools and techniques. Let's look at the second. No religion sees the whole truth. It only sees uh, in part. Uh, and consequently, you, you might conclude, all of us are right, all of us are wrong. Okay? No religion sees the whole truth. Right? We only see in part. The way this, this uh, point is usually illustrated, is famously illustrated, uh, is with the story of some blind men uh, and an elephant. Uh, and the story goes like this. Uh, Three blind men go for a walk one day uh, when suddenly they happen upon uh, an elephant. The first blind man grabs the elephant by the trunk and he says to his friends, Behold, this creature is long and flexible like a snake. The second blind man uh, walks and he grabs the elephant by the leg and says, No, you're wrong. This creature is large and round like a tree trunk. The third blind man walks and grabs the elephant by the side and says, No, you both are wrong. This creature is long and flat like a wolf. And the story concludes, Each blind man could only feel part of the elephant. None could envision the entire elephant. And in the same way, religions of the world are are all able to grasp only part of the truth about God and ultimate reality and none of them can see the whole elephant as it were. They only see in part. Well, it's a catchy story, no pun intended. Um, There's a reason why it is told again and again. 
Uh, but there are some pretty obvious problems uh, with it. Okay, for starters, the whole story is told from the vantage point of someone who clearly knows that the elephant is an elephant. Everybody is blind in this story except for the one telling it, except for the narrator. We are all blind, grasping for the truth, except him or except her. He or she sees everything. Silly Christians, right, grabbing the trunk. Silly Muslims grabbing the leg. Silly Buddhists and Jews grabbing the side. They only see in part. I see everything, right? I see the whole. You see the problem? We have to ask the teller of the story, what is the absolute vantage point from which you claim to be able to relativize all the absolute claims these different religions make? How can you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have superior knowledge of spiritual, of spiritual reality that you're claiming nobody has? You're saying everybody is blindly grasping at the truth except for me. I see everything. I see you grabbing these things here and there. I'm not blind. Do you realize how arrogant that is? That's the first problem with that story. The second problem is even more serious than the first. It's true, in some ways we are blind, right? If we are to know God as he really is, he needs to reveal himself to us first, right? If he chooses to remain silent, we will not know him. If he chooses to hide himself, if he chooses not to disclose himself, we will not know him. In that regard, we are blind. But this raises the paradigm-shattering question. What if the elephant talks? What if we are a bunch of blind men stumbling upon an elephant? But what if the elephant talks? What What if the elephant is able to say to the blind man, that thing that you're holding onto is my trunk. It's not a snake. That thing that you're holding onto is my leg. It's not a trunk. That thing that you think is a wall, that's my side. Look, if the elephant were actually able to communicate, would you be arrogant for listening to him? Would you be humble for ignoring his word? Christians claim that there is an elephant, as it were, to stumble upon, and that elephant can communicate. That there is a God, and he is not silent. And he has told us who he is, and what he is like, and who we are, and what we are like. We don't have to guess. Christians do not claim to know the truth exhaustively. What they do claim is to know the truth truly. Think of it this way. I've known Megan for eight years. We met at a New Year's Eve party in Rockin' in 2009. Eight, over eight years ago. We've been married uh, seven uh, of those eight years. And do I know everything there is to know about Megan? Of course not, right? But just because I don't know everything there is to know about Megan, just because I don't know her exhaustively, doesn't mean I don't know her. I do know her, and I know her quite well. 
We, we relate to God in the same way. We do not know him exhaustively any more than I know Megan exhaustively, but we can know him. We do know him. And what we know about him is true. God is there and he is not silent. He has revealed himself to us. He has told us the truth. Okay, a third slogan, our last slogan is this. You have your truth, I have my truth. Uh, Keep your truths to yourself. Now the problems of saying you have your truth, I have my truth, uh, is the same problem where we're saying you have your facts, I have my alternative facts. Okay, we could spend a, a lot more time talking about the problems with that, um, the disingenuousness of that, uh, the danger of that. What I want to focus on, at least for tonight, is just the last part of that statement, where it's sort of, look, just keep your truths to yourself. Don't try to convert anybody. Why is that a problem? Or what's wrong with that, uh, saying something like that? Just think about it for a second. Okay, the person who says don't convert others or keep your truths to yourself, that person believes certain things about God. Okay, that person believes maybe that there isn't a God or maybe that there is a God but he, she, or it is unknowable or that there is a God who doesn't really care what we think or say, who is not going to hold us accountable for our beliefs or our actions. It's hard to say. But the person saying that has some belief about God. And it's on the basis of these beliefs, which are faith-based beliefs. Okay, they are not proven scientifically. All right, these are beliefs that are held by faith. It's on the basis of these beliefs that he is saying to you, saying to me, keep your beliefs to yourself. You see what's going on? In some ways, they are trying to convert you to their way of thinking. They're saying, my specific faith beliefs are superior to yours. I'm right. You're wrong. There's not a God who's going to hold you accountable, so don't try to convert other people. There's not a God that we can know, so stop trying to convince you're the, yours is the right way. Or frankly, there, there's not a God, so stop with this religious nonsense. Whatever it is, there, there, that argument, don't convert people, keep your truths to yourself, is coming out of a religious worldview. It's on the basis of very specific faith assumptions. And they're trying to impose their faith upon you. And some they're doing the very thing that they say none of us should do. There's hypocrisy in it. Okay? It's not fair. Where does this leave us? Y'all, it turns out that every single one of us in this room has exclusive religious or faith-based beliefs. Every one of us does. Okay, every one of us is religious. I know at UVM, just as it was at CU Boulder where I went to school, most people said, look, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. Okay, maybe that's how you feel. I want to push back a little bit. You are religious. You are Religion is simply a set of answers to life's biggest questions. Why are we here? What is right and wrong? What is wrong with the human race? Who or what is going to fix it? Look, even the atheist has answers to those questions. 
Everybody has answers to those questions. Okay, everybody is religious. As Tim Keller points out in his excellent book, The Reason for God, the answers to these big questions are implicitly religious because you cannot prove these answers in a lab. Why are we here? What is right and wrong? What's wrong with the human race? Who or what will fix it? You can't, it's not like you figure that out in a lab. Okay, they are religious beliefs, faith-based answers, and everyone has them. Now, granted, you might not have given it too much thought, and granted, your answers to those questions might be inconsistent. But my point is just this. You have answers. You're religious. Consciously or unconsciously, knowingly or unknowingly, you have exclusive religious beliefs, and you are living your life on the basis of those beliefs. Okay, the question then is not whether or not we should have them. We all do. Okay, that's not the question. The question is, which set of beliefs is true? Which set of beliefs latches on to reality, makes sense of the world that is out there and as well as in here, the exterior world and your interior life? Which set of answers makes the most sense of the data? And also, how are we going to get along in a world where there are competing exclusive religious belief systems? How are we going to get along in a world where not everybody agrees? Those are the kinds of questions we really need to be asking. Which is true? How can we live together? I want to sketch out for you two thoughts. Okay. Before I do, just so you know, like after a lot of soul searching and spiritual questing, I've come to believe that the best and honest answers to those questions and more really are contained in the Bible. Uh, that Jesus is indeed the way, uh, the truth, and the life. I did not grow up believing that. I did not believe that in college. It took me quite some time before I came to this conclusion, but I have come to it. I believe that this exclusive belief system makes the most sense of the world out there and in here. And I believe that this exclusive belief system leads to the most peaceful, loving, and inclusive behavior on the planet. And I just want to sketch out why I think that's true. First of all, I believe Christianity makes the most sense of the data. Okay, today you and I woke up in a beautiful but broken world. The world that you woke up in today, it is not all awful, but it is not all awesome either. It is beautiful, but it is broken. Friends, which religion makes the most sense of that? That can hold... (laughs) Those two in tension. Which one can? Ask yourself, who am I? Are you just a random collocation of atoms? Is that who you are? Are you just an ape in trousers? Is that who you are? Or is there something hard to put your finger on 
that separates you and me from the rest of the animal kingdom. What religion makes sense of your humanity? Ask yourself this. Do my choices matter? Is my life meaningful or meaningless? Is there a grain to the universe? Was it designed in a certain way? And consequently, is there really a right way to go and a wrong way to go? Or are we just making up the rules as we go? Which is it? Which religion makes the most sense of ethics and morality and justice? Look, when you become a Christian, if, when you become a Christian, you don't get to leave your brain behind. You don't. On the contrary, if you were to put your faith in Jesus, you will use your brain more and better than you ever have used it before. Okay, Christianity is a thinking, feeling, holistic religion. It demands the best of you, and it, de- best, it demands the best of all of you. The best of your head, right, the best of your heart, and the best of your hands. It is not a leap in the dark. Faith is not a leap in the dark. It is asking good, hard questions. It is gathering evidences, and then it is making a decision based on on the evidences that you have found. And look, there has to be space for you here at UVM to do that. There has to be. It's why we're here. It's why we're in large group tonight. It's why we have Bible studies. It's why we can go grab coffee at Brennan's. Coffee's not that as good at Brennan's. It's better at Henderson's. We can grab coffee at Henderson's. We can grab popcorn at Brennan's. Like, look... I want you to think. Which religion makes the most sense of the data? I believe it's Christianity. I also believe this. I believe that Christianity leads to the most humble, loving, peaceful, and inclusive behavior. Christianity is the most exclusive, inclusive religion around. And now let's just... We're going to close with this, with Jesus' words, okay? In John 14. When Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, he is absolutely making an exclusive truth claim. And we must not water it down. Okay, Jesus is not claiming to be some moral sage for the ages. He's not simply saying, look, I am a way. I am a truth. I am a life that you can emulate. He's saying, I am the way. I am truth with a capital T. I am life with a capital L. No one comes to the Father but through me. In no uncertain terms, he is saying, I am God and I am the door into heaven. If you want to get into heaven, you have to go through me. Period. You're like, it's so exclusive. I know. I know. But look, it's, I'll, we'll get there. This is the most exclusive, inclusive religion on the market. And there's a market. You've got seven, <laughs> you've got a tray of like seven things to eat from in front of you. 
In Bible study, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, and in that sermon, Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Don't think that I've come to get rid of the law, to throw it away. No, no, no. I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to keep it perfectly. He goes on to say, look, until heaven and earth pass away, the law, which you can think of as the Ten Commandments, look, they're not going anywhere. They're not changing. You're going to be judged by them. And he concludes that section, that paragraph, with these very weighty words. Unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes, you will, not, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say if, if you're as good as them. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds the, right, the, the, the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes, you are not getting in. Period. Since we looked at that section in Bible study, we have looked at two commands. Do not murder. And this week we're looking at do not commit adultery. After each Bible study that I've led, I've asked our group, look, how well do you think you all are doing keeping this command? The best, the highest group like score, like average, last week was a C-. minus. Uh, and this week, I, everybody's failing, myself included. That's two commandments, to say nothing of the other eight. Okay, we're getting a D average on two commandments. And look, I don't see it getting much better, friends. Look, in order to get into heaven, we need to be acing these things, and we are not. We're not. And that is a problem. It's a problem. A couple weeks ago, um, I used this analogy with some of you that uh, imagine you want to buy a, a really nice sport, uh, sports car. It's a super expensive, maybe a, a perfect spotless uh, Porsche sports car. I see some head shake and you're like, I'm, this illustration stinks. All right, well, just bear with me. Imagine this car. It's $200,000. There's three ways you can get it. You can either work really hard, save really hard, so that you can eventually buy it yourself. You can steal it, or somebody with $200,000 can buy it and give it to you. Those really are your three options. I want you to apply that same level of thinking to this righteousness that you need to get into heaven. You can't steal it. Okay, that's off the table. What are you going to do? Jesus is saying, look, there's a heaven you need to get in. In order to get in, you need this perfect, spotless righteousness. How are you going to acquire it? Are you going to work really hard and save really hard until you get it? If so, how's that going for you? How you doing? We're getting a D in RUF. Right? Your other option is that somebody who actually has it gives it to you. And that's where I want to just take you back to Matthew 5.17 where Jesus says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, no, no. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to keep it perfectly. I've come to get a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And I haven't done this just for me. 
I've done it for you. Y'all, the Bible says that when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are united to him. That what is yours is his, and what is his is yours. It says that Jesus takes your sins, which are many, and he takes them to the cross, where he dies the death that you deserve to die. He takes your punishment in your place, and his perfection is yours. This is a great exchange. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life because he is the only one who has done this for you. And he is the only one who will. Either you can receive what he is freely offering to you. Look, I've done everything to get you into heaven. The doors are thrust wide open. Will you please receive what I'm giving to you? Either you freely receive it or you say, I don't want it. Leave me to myself I want to do it on my own. And again, I just want to ask you, without a hint of arrogance, how are you doing with that? How is that going for you? Yes, this is exclusive. Jesus is the only way. But do you also see how super inclusive this is? Jesus is your only Savior, but salvation is offered to everyone. It is offered to everyone, regardless of their race, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their education, their background, their income, their class, their age, etc., etc. Everybody is invited. Christians are not people who have done it all right. We are not a perfect people. Christians are those who realize, shoot, I'm not all right. I need help. I am not perfect, but I do need a perfect Savior. That confession makes you a Christian. When you realize just how much mercy you've been shown, it makes you a merciful person. And when you realize that God loves hard-to-love people, which is he loves me, it makes it a whole lot easier for you to begin to love hard-to-love people too. When you understand the depths of God's kindness and graciousness and forgiveness towards you, it makes you want to be a kind and gracious and forgiving person. You know, Christianity is an exclusive. It is exclusive. Jesus is the the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. But it leads to the most loving, humble, peaceful, and inclusive behavior. It just does. Y'all, we're graduating with Daniel this week. This is our last time we're going to see him in college. I know we didn't read about it. If you were just joining us today, trust me, we are still in Daniel. Okay. But I'm glad that we've had the opportunity to spend three weeks focusing on the flow. We're going to continue to look at his life. And I hope that we can continue some of the conversations that we have started. Jesus said that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That you are to be different for goodness sake. And my prayer right now with my eyes open is that you will be men and women who know the truth and who love the truth 
and who tell the truth. I pray that you will let your light shine and that you will let it shine for God's glory as well as for the benefit of the people that you go to school with and live beside. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.